Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Welcome to Sound Practice. I'm Mike Sakopoulos, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Cheryl Toth. Hey, how are you? Hey, Mike. I am well. It's been a good week. Very good week, actually. Thanks for asking. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Now, Tothy, do you remember your first job? Oh, like my first job ever or for my first job after college? No, no, like your, 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 first, your first job what, before college. Okay, you ready for this? My first job was as primarily a waitress, but I also plated food. I was a hostess. I cleaned the bathroom, sort of all those things at Chicken and Egg Roll Restaurant in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wow. I don't know about cleaning restrooms and, and plating food at a Chinese restaurant, but, but good for you. It was a great um, first job. It, yeah, I loved it. That does, does sound like a good, uh, good first job. Yep. Um, so my, my first job was scraping and sanding an old garage. And oh. it was, it, it, that's, that's not really, you know, intellectually stimulating work, right? <laughs> no. Uh, but worse, it was in August in Indiana. And that time of the year here can be really nasty. Humidity level and temperature number, you know, can match up. It, oh, it, yeah. it can just be, as you know, Midwestern, you know how, how unpleasant things can be. Yep. But, um, but as, as bad as that was, <clears throat> and it was not much fun, it was certainly better than my friends who were out detasseling corn and baling hay, which is uh, far, far more difficult, um, difficult work. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I too grew up in the Midwest, Grand Rapids, Michigan, as I just disclosed. And uh, a lot of my friends would do like pick strawberries and things in the summer. And I thought the same thing. I, I thought my, my deal at, at Chicken and Egg Roll was a much better situation than being in the fields <laughs> and all of that humidity and the mosquitoes and stuff. So, but okay, back to this barn, not barn scraping. Uh, what is, oh, garage scraping. Yeah, that, kind of like a barn. Yeah. Okay. Well, how did that pay? I'm curious. Oh, it was so, it, let's just say that, that the minimum wage laws did not apply to me at the time. Oh. It was not paid well. Well, I got paid two bucks cash under the table at chicken and egg roll, but I got to keep all my tips. So I didn't really, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think the minimum wage laws applied to me either. <laughs> I, and I also snuck in, I think I started there when I was 15 and that was really not legal, but they let me start anyway. Clearly they didn't follow all those HR rules, but, but I digress. So back to you, Mike, um, you needed to get, you needed help. We both did, I guess. Oh, I needed getting, help. Let me tell getting you. Getting appropriate compensation. Cause at least I got to keep my tips, which actually did make that job uh, rather lucrative for a 15 year old. Sure. Yeah. But you needed, you needed to get some help for a better comp. I did. That's for sure. You could have used some advice. You could say from our guests, uh, Max, Reibolt and Justin Chamblay, who you spoke with. <laughs> Tony, where were they when I needed them? <laughs> you know, sadly, I must say that my compensation was probably about what I, what was deserved because you know it wasn't really that quality of labor just wasn't uh, wasn't there when I was fifteen. I'm sorry to say it was not your finest hour. It well, was not. Well, today we are going to talk about physician compensation models and trends with Max and Justin. You know, Max and Justin are really best in class when it comes to physician uh, compensation and understanding those those issues. I'm telling you, this is a discussion that is uh, worth people's time to listen to, Tothi. But first, before we enter into that, what do we have to do? Word of the show. Yes. 
Uh, Absolutely. Do you have one for me today? Yes, I do. Here it is, my friend. Mendicant, a beggar, a friar. Oh, very nice. So you went with a change up here. I was looking for some kind of um, money success word, but you opted for the uh, fear over uh, greed as the uh, the motivation for yes, this word of the do. day. Yes. Um, very nice. Well, and to avoid ending up being a mendicant, we better listen to Max and Justin and hear what they have to say about physician compensation and wh- what are the trends out there and what do people need to be thinking about? Oh, well played. All right. On that note, on with the show. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Max Reimbold and Justin Chebley, both CPAs of the Coker Group based in Atlanta, Georgia. They are experts on practice in physician compensation, as well as transactional work. Uh, Their organization is based in Atlanta, Georgia, but has clients nationwide. It's my great pleasure to welcome Max and Justin to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your time uh, being being with us. So, because we're talking about compensation, I think we have everyone's attention, right? I mean, this is a topic that um, people can can relate to, and is, in my opinion fairly complex. So I'm glad that I have two experts to, uh, to help, help through these issues. Why don't we just start with what you see in your day-to-day um, practice as far as changes to physician compensation models, if any? Yeah, Mike, that's a, a great question. And I might start off very quickly by commenting on some of the things that are driving change, uh, because we, we do see a lot of change. Uh, but to, to understand the change, I think it's first important to understand the why. And I would say there's three key things that are driving change right now. One is, uh, as, as is a, a very hot topic, and that is value-based reimbursement. So this push from volume to value is necessitating some level of change in compensation structures. Alongside that, there is a question of affordability, meaning uh, what can we afford to pay physicians? There's this uh, um, Bermuda Triangle of recruitment, retention, financial viability, being market-based, and how do we navigate that is a key question that is being asked. And then finally, I, I would say growth and scalability in health systems and their medical groups is necessitating some level of change. And that is uh, trying to move from individual physician deals, if that has been the method that uh, health systems have brought physicians on, to creating some kind of uh, consistency as to how uh, the organization compensates physicians. So with that in mind, with those being sort of the three key changes, I think they also speak to what is changing, and that is uh, to, to be brief, and then of course we can expound upon this, but number one, uh, the incorporation of value-based incentives in some way, shape, or form. Number two, looking at the economics and making sure that we are not just uh, randomly pulling numbers out of a survey, but, but, but using variables that we think are sustainable long-term and then finally creating a platform for compensating physicians that we can actually manage. Okay. Um, I, I believe I'm, I'm following you. 
tell me about the, the, the value-based reimbursement. What would be an example of that? Something tangible that I can, can relate to. Sure. So uh, another great question, Mike. I, I think what most organizations have experienced over the last uh, couple of years is the incorporation of either alternative payment models or MIPS, the Merit Incentive Payment System, uh, that are both driven by Medicare. And, and those have touched practically any physician in the healthcare system that is taking Medicare reimbursement. And so those have altered how reimbursement is coming in, meaning it is not all simply fee-for-service. Now it is what we'll call fee-for-value. And so we are now looking at compensation structures and saying, hey, how do we supplement the volume-based incentives with these value-based incentives? And so we're looking at what is driving those sources of revenue, meaning uh, what are the specific MIPS metrics? Or outside of MIPS, what are some of the other uh, quality metrics that uh, are of importance? And let's start to tie compensation to those. And do you see this varying by specialty or specialist different than primary care? Are there some models that are better one way or the other? I would say big picture, we see the value-based initiative affecting all specialties, both primary care and specialty care, but the impact varies by specialty. And to, to paint two broad categories of primary care and specialty care, of those two, we see much more impact in the primary care realms and specialty care realms. And that is because primary care physicians are tend to be seen as being able to better affect population health, meaning they are the, the primary gatekeepers to the specialist. They are tasked with managing this population of patients. Thus, there is much more focus on how do we incentivize them to, to, to truly manage that population of patients and, and, and their health uh, versus what I would call more, more so the episodic care that uh, uh, certain specialty care physicians provide. Uh, understood. Now, you gentlemen have been been at this for uh, for a while, and I would assume that you're starting to see deals that you've helped work on mature and need revision or come into a, a second generation. Is that is that fair? And is that something, um, Max, that you work on? Yeah, and uh, it's a perfect segue and complimentary to what Justin has just talked about, Mike. Uh, yeah, we. We've had the good fortune of being involved in transactions between physicians and other physician groups, and, and even more so, I think we're probably focused on uh, physicians and hospitals or health systems, and, and then even these days, uh, private equity groups are in play. And uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, what we call, and you use the term accurately, second-generation deals, where uh, the renewals are up, and frankly, some of the look of the second generation compensation structure is very different than the first generation. There are a couple, two or three reasons for this. Uh, again, Justin's done a great job talking about probably the, the first and foremost reason, and that is simply the fact that the paradigm has shifted somewhat anyway to at least uh, the concepts of value-based reimbursement as opposed to straight 
what we call volume-based reimbursement. I think another thing that's in play that, that uh, we see a fair amount, though, is that the uh, some of the first-generation deals, while they were well reasonably well thought through, and obviously history is is 2020, or it should be in hindsight to, to work toward the future, but I think we've learned from where some of the faults and fallacies were. And, and so the requirements vis-a-vis -vis even uh, behavioral requirements, as well as uh, some productivity requirements, some other uh, requirements for participation in uh, call responsibilities and whatnot, those have all now been taken a much more detailed and serious look at the renewal deals. The Again, we call them second generation. They may even be third in some cases, but those are coming into play and really changing the look of the compensation structure uh, a, a great deal, and certainly as advisors to uh, both sides, uh, both you know the employee and the employer, and we work on both sides, uh, is really uh, requiring that level of uh, understanding and application. Well, this sounds like there's a good amount of diligence that that needs to go on in an ongoing basis. Is that is that fair to say to make sure that compensation is matching up to and other issues? I think you raised behavioral and, and so forth, uh, matching up to everyone's expectations and needs. Is that is that fair? Very much so, and I think Justin sees this day in and day out as he's uh, really into the weeds of, of these deals and the structuring of them. From my level, more strategic and, as I said, transactional, I see it in the sense that uh, oftentimes uh, we're working with, it may be single or multi-specialty groups or entities, and, and, and yet uh, there's nuances within uh, every situation. I always use the uh, uh, adage that it, when you've seen one deal or one practice structure, you've seen one. And and <laughs> while there's certainly some common applications, there's a lot of nuanced differences to each one. I know, Justin, you, you see that firsthand all the time. Well, that's that's one of the reasons I, I assume that, that people need experts like yourselves, is that this is not straightforward um, watch a YouTube video and go try it for yourself type of situation, right? So, um, and, and even after a transaction, there, there's some, some post-transactional uh, review of compensation. Is that maybe we haven't made it to the second generation, but we've made it through a transaction. Is that something your organization can help folks with? That is correct, Mike. Uh, we see the compensation model as being a living and breathing organism. And uh, most organizations are moving away from what I would call the deal uh, to deal equation, but more so adopting holistic medical group compensation strategies and philosophies and that's that's where we have played a big role is helping craft those overarching compensation strategies and philosophies so that we get away from these individual physician or medical group deals to having holistic models and and that has been helpful for a couple of reasons number one it allows change to be effectuated more easily meaning if we need to um, insert more value-based incentives into the equation instead of having to renegotiate, you know, 40 different individual physician 
comp structures that exist, you know, we are modifying a single uh, physician compensation policy that affects the entire organization and, and adopting it that way. And so uh, to, to, to summarize, we see a lot of ongoing upkeep needed for physician compensation arrangements. And a lot of that has been done by how the compensation structure is being organized within medical groups. I, I understand that, that each, each deal is a little bit different, but if you could, for our, our audience, give an idea when someone knows that we're, we're moving into needing to review a compensation structure, what's a normal kind of timeline? Is this something that is several months in length or you work with clients um, for a much longer time period than that before a, a compensation model is uh, introduced? That, that's a great question. I would say most organizations every 12 to 24 months are looking at their model and kicking the tires and saying if, if or determining if anything needs to be tweaked. I don't think any organization is making wholesale changes more frequently than that or even uh, every 12 to 24 months. So it's truly more of a, hey, let's kick the tires. Let's see if we are still consistent with uh, where the market is. Let's make sure that we can still afford what we are paying and then make slight tweaks to adjust for those key dynamics. And what we have really tried to be diligent in doing is developing compensation structures that can be tweaked occasionally versus having to be changed uh, holistically in order to uh, adapt to the, the healthcare market. I think once you get into that change process, if we are adapting or adopting some pretty significant changes, that, that, that change process is not a quick exercise. You know, when we are dealing with physician compensation, you're dealing with the, the livelihoods of the physicians, you're dealing with key stakeholders in the organization. And so we have to be very careful as to how we go through that process with a lot of education and collaboration to make sure that uh, we can successfully move from point A, meaning where we are right now, to point B, meaning where we want to get to. And I would just uh, quickly add that sometimes the change management process of getting from point A to point B is much more complex than simply developing that point B, meaning the, the new compensation model. Understood. Let's maybe shift gears towards some, um, and, and Justin, Max, you may have a better term for this than, than I do, but I'm thinking of this as kind of ancillary uh, compensation for things uh, outside the normal practice of medicine. I'm talking about call call coverage, for example, or a medical directorship overseeing um, advanced uh, practitioners. Um, so is that something that your organization helps uh, clients with? We do a yeah, lot absolutely. of work in that area. And um, excuse me, Justin, uh, and, and clearly it's, it's a big issue. Um, I'm going to approach it slightly from a slightly different angle, and then I'll, I'll let Justin give you a more direct answer to your question. Uh, we see it more and more as a compliance concern. And um, while clearly there's myriad areas that hospitals and physicians can be subjected to regulatory scrutiny and, and even uh, assess assertions that they were in violation, uh, these seem to be areas such as call pay, medical directorships, 
other, let's just say, use the term ancillary form of compensation where uh, truly uh, there's a lot of exposure and vulnerability if it's not done right, if it's not fully documented. Let me, let me just give you one quick example. Let's say, for, for instance, that uh, there is a, an agreement for some level professional services. It could be a co-management agreement. It could be, uh, I suppose, call, though usually call is set and compensated on a per diem basis of some sort. But let's say, for example, it, it's tied to the amount of work that the physician does and it is tied to an hourly rate of that compensation. Well, it is much better from a compliance standpoint if the fee or the rate per hour is set and understood and even opined upon by an independent party uh, as fair market value and, and reasonable commercially, but it is equally important then to require the physician or the provider of some sort to document their time. And so, and, and often that's where the breakdown occurs. So all these things are very important from a compliance standpoint. In terms of how they're paid and how they're derived, I'll let Justin jump in and give you more insights. If you want to, Justin, go ahead. Sure, I'll, I'll comment <clears throat> real quickly on, on call pay because it tends to be a, hot topic of conversation, and I think it has evolved over time. Uh, we do still see a lot of call pay, especially with private practice physicians, where they're paid uh, oftentimes on a daily basis to provide unassigned emergency department call coverage. Uh, how the dynamic has begun to change is in the hospital-employed realm, and the, the methodology that we've adopted, and I would say this is pretty consistent throughout the industry, is that if you're providing a market-based level of base compensation or paying a physician at a market-based level uh, of, of rates per work RVU, that inherently includes some level of call pay. And so we typically recommend health systems not compensate from the first day of call, meaning we will assume that some portion of call is baked into that baseline responsibility uh, and, and that can be somewhat uh, specialty specific. And so we only then like to see call pay being provided to the extent that the physician is taking call beyond that baseline. So we'll call that excess call. Uh, a very simple illustration is if uh, we establish the baseline level of call as a one in five rotation, uh, but that physician is covering a one in three rotation, meaning instead of there being five physicians in the rotation, there's three. Thus, that physician is having to take more days of call. We'll pay him for those excess days, but not starting from day one of call. So that's just one example of how we see that, that ancillary type of comp compensation in terms of other forms of compensation playing out uh, to where it is, is truly still a factor, but it uh, has to be, at least in our opinion, in the appropriate context uh, to ensure that we are, are A-OK -okay from a compliance standpoint. I think that that's, that's very smart. And you're, you're right that there would be some assumed amount of, of, base, of base call coverage. Is that uh, typically coordinated with um, a hospital's bylaws, for example, to set a minimum standard? 
Great question, Mike. We oftentimes do look at the hospital bylaws. Uh, other times we will simply look at uh, what market norms are, which are pretty standard uh, uh, and, and even can be found in, in, as published in certain surveys that we oftentimes reference. And so I would say it's a combination uh, of hospital bylaws or what market norms are. I think where, where hospital bylaws play into the equation is if it's a physician who perhaps is on senior active status and thus per the hospital bylaws is not necessarily required to take call anymore, mm -hmm. uh, we may factor that into the equation uh, when, when we're establishing that baseline versus simply saying, hey, it's a one in five rotation or something akin to that. I get, um, switch gears on you, Justin. I, I get a number of uh, inquiries about compensation for overseeing physician assistants or nurse practitioners, obviously this is somewhat dependent upon what state a provider is practicing in as to how many and how much supervision is required. Uh, do you get a lot of, uh, a lot of interest on this, this topic? It seems to be one that's uh, picking up uh, steam. Great question again, Mike, and that is a key area of, of focus right now. And, and really it's the overall advanced practice provider dynamic, both in terms of how um, to pay them as well as to pay physicians for their oversight. Uh, in fact, this was a topic of conversation that I, uh, at a conference that I spoke at uh, here a couple of months ago, that the, the specific topic of my conversation was on uh, advanced practice providers and, and, and uh, how their compensation should work. So that just speaks to uh, the fact that it is a key focal point in the market. But uh, how we typically approach the oversight piece of the equation is really looking at how uh, the advanced practice providers are being used. And what I mean by that is in certain instances, especially primary care, that advanced practice provider is seeing their own panel of patients. Uh, they are working alongside the physician, but not directly under, underneath uh, the physician, meaning they, they truly are seeing different patients than the physician is. Uh, and, and in that instance, the physician is required to provide oversight, uh, reviewing patient records, being available for questions, things akin to that. And in those instances, we truly do believe some form of oversight payment, which can take on a number of different forms, is appropriate by nature of the added work that is uh, required of the physician. In other f instances, and this happens a lot in specialty care realms where the advanced practice provider is working more so as a support resource for the physician, uh, mm -hmm. meaning they're not necessarily seeing their own panel of patients, but more so uh, helping the physician with his panel or her panel of patients. In those instances, uh, we'll, we'll look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, but oftentimes we see that that advanced practice provider, by nature of their activity, is allowing the physician to be more, be more productive. And in that instance, we don't necessarily see an oversight stipend being needed because of the fact that the benefit of having that advanced practice provider is already built in and seen by nature of the physician being able to be more productive. Thus, if we were paying an oversight stipend on top of that, you're almost double compensating for that uh, APP's work. Under, understood. And that, that seems like a reasonable, a reasonable approach to that. Um, Mike, there's, uh, if I may interject one, one thought at this point as well, I think it's fairly relevant. There's a concept uh, or a description that we use sometimes in uh, 
designing compensation models and, and really determining the amount that the physician is being paid, particularly by hospitals, where they have multiple, I call them touch points of compensation. We've touched on several in the last few minutes, uh, base pay, incentive pay, tied to employment, for example, call pay, uh, medical directorship compensation, APP oversight, and others. Uh, from a compliance standpoint, again, I'll kind of continue that uh, thought. There's a term that we call stacking of income, and uh, sometimes this is really not uh, recognized, particularly by the physicians. They'll uh, they'll not really, or let's just say, they'd be somewhat oblivious to the fact that you know all this is income that they're receiving from a hospital, and it all adds up, and it has to be stacked together to be able to really determine the total package of compensation and how that equates, for example, to the amount of time that they spend in in working. And there's all only so many hours in the day and the week. And realistically, there's only so much somebody can work for a certain amount of time and pay. And so we've, we've experienced uh, a need to educate uh, really hospitals, but as I said, more so physicians in understanding this concept. And it's it's very relevant. You could, for example, be in compliance on what they're being, you're being paid for two or three of these, these areas, but when you add them all up and aggregate it and put it against the amount of time that it would require them to work, it may not be quite as uh, uh, appropriate. So another concept that we have to apply here. So thinking of compensation as a, as a package instead of individual individual components is that is that the most correct correct yeah I think that that, that makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense uh, and you're right anything in isolation may look appropriate but in combination may um, uh, may be out of bounds or at least could be a red flag uh, and we don't need those kind of don't need those kind of problems um, <clears throat> I'm interested in a in a panel compensation concept that I don't know much about, but I think you all work in that, that arena or have some knowledge, do you not? Uh, we do. So this is a, I would say a relatively new dynamic that we see coming into play primarily with primary care physicians, and that is uh, providing some level of incentive surrounding panel size. And the rationale for panel size, well, and maybe I should back up real quick, Mike, and clarify what panel size is. And that is typically viewed as the unique patients seen by a physician in a 18-month period. Okay. And, and, and in essence, it, it's a measure of that physician's active patient population that technically is under their management and oversight. Okay. Mm -hmm. And why we see this coming up is, number one, uh, if you think about capitation, it is all focused on panel size and, and, and the panel of patients that a physician is managing. If you think about uh, that dynamic as we pursue value-based incentives, it makes a lot of sense as well by nature of the fact that the ability to affect care it, for a primary care physician is tied to those panel of patients that they are managing. And then finally, why it is coming into play is in this day and age, many physicians, especially primary care physicians, are, are 
being asked to do more and more what I would call paperwork, so non-work RVU or non-revenue uh, generating activity. Meaning, they, they just love that, don't they? Uh, they, they, they can't do. get enough it, of that, uh, can they, Justin? <laughs> exactly, but it is a very important part of managing a population of patients, and so. What we have done in, in a number of instances is built in panel incentives to supplement the work RVU-based portion of a compensation model to recognize not only the fee-for-service dollars that are being generated, but also the patient management activities that the primary care physicians are, are performing. And these incentives typically start out quite small, meaning 5% of, of the total compensation package, for example. Uh-huh. But what it does is, number one, it gets us focused on a new measure of production that has typically not been a focus, which I think is very healthy. Number two, it allows another metric to, to, uh, to manage to, meaning are we closing our panels? Are we seeing panel growth? How do we enhance the population of patients that we're overseeing? Do we use advanced practice providers to expand access? All of those questions now uh, come into play because we have a, a good metric to evaluate against. And then finally, to the extent uh, we, we do move more and more towards a capitated model, which uh, I think is, is uh, to, to truly see full capitation, I think we are a long way away from if, if ever, but we do see instances of capitation creeping in, and it just allows us to be a little bit more prepared for that potential in the future. Absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate both of you taking time uh, to walk me through some of this. This is a certainly a dynamic area of healthcare, and I appreciate your expertise and, um, and guidance. On behalf of the listeners, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and wish you all the best. Uh, those listening to the podcast will have contact information for both Max and um, Justin in the show notes. Thank you very much. Well, folks, that's it for this episode of Sound Practice. If you liked today's episode with Max and Justin, please tell your colleagues. They can listen from our website, soundpracticepodcast.com. Uh, all of our shows and the audio files are listed on the homepage or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. And if you go there, you can subscribe and then you'll get all of our new episodes automatically. And you can review us there too. Right, Mike? Absolutely. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, we'd love to hear it. Please email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. Don't forget, we release one every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com.